there exists in my household what is now a 12-year running feud. You laugh, but it's serious. It's a problem for which no real compromise exists. A problem for which there is no appropriate middle ground, and my wife and I simply cannot come to terms on. It's a feud that stems from the fact that my wife does not believe in three-way light switches. <laughs> While I, on the other hand, do believe in three-way light switches. For those of you that are unfamiliar, a three-way light switch is a light switch that can be turned on or off from two different locations. They're frequently put on opposite ends of the room, so you don't have to walk through the room and trip over things in the dark to find the switch, or potentially at the top and bottom of stairs so that you don't trip down the stairs if you're at the top and the light is off. This is a feud in my house because I think that these are incredible inventions that prevent me from killing myself, walking over my children's toys in the middle of the night. My wife instead holds to a position that may be considered this way. She thinks that every light switch panel on the wall has what you might call an optimal configuration. In that, all the light switches should either be up or all the light switches should be down. See, I know there's some of you out here that agree with my wife on this subject. But what that means is you have to walk across the room tripping over everything in order to turn the light switches on or off, and you can only turn them on or off from one side of the room. This feud came to a head about eight years ago in our relationship when we bought our first house. A house that had any number of these hated switches. And so over the last eight years, I came to the realization that I had to make a choice. I either had to choose my preference for convenience, or I had to choose my marriage. You'll notice that I chose my marriage. And so being the loving and dutiful husband that I am, I have opted to adopt my wife's preference on light switches. Taking the extra step up and down the stairs or across the room to make sure that all the light switches are going the same direction. This came to a point or to a particular realization here recently when during a trip that my wife and the kids took back to Alma to see my in-laws, all of the kids and my wife are out of the house, they're all back in Alma, and yet, alone in the house, by myself, I found that I personally couldn't stand the light switches being flipped backward. Even when I was there by myself, I couldn't shake it. Now, aside from the obvious marriage advice that I'm expressing here in this story to those of you that are newlyweds or those of you that are dating, why do I bother to tell this story? What could that possibly have to do with our study in the book of 1 John? Because it was in that moment, as my wife and kids were out of, the, out of the house, and I was walking back up the stairs to the top of the stairs to turn the light back on, that I had an epiphany, a bit of a realization. I realized that my love, my devotion, my relationship my, with my wife had caused me to adopt her affections. My closeness of our relationship caused me to love what she loved and to avoid what she hated. I took on her affections because I had spent so much time with her. And that is precisely the point that I believe John is making here in our text this morning. Though he isn't speaking of our relationship with spouses or other people, he is speaking of our relationship with God. And he makes the point, John's argument here in this text is that if God is light, and we'll talk more about what that means here in just a moment, 
then those who love him will grow to love the light, and they will grow to hate the darkness. If God is light and they love God, well, we will grow to love the light and to love what God loves and to hate the darkness and to hate what God hates. I trust that as I read through the text that you'll see what I mean. We'll be reading 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 through chapter 2, verse 6. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteousness. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not our, or for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him but does not keep his commandments as a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask for your help in this moment. Lord, I need your help to rightly understand your word, to rightly teach your word to your people. And all of us need your help to rightly understand it and to apply it to our lives. I pray that as we study your word, that you would open our eyes, that you would give us soft hearts, give us open ears. Lord, help us to receive your word as what it is, directly the word of truth from you. Lord, help us to use it in our lives, use it to shape and mold and refine us, help, us, help it to conform us to the image of Christ. And Lord, help it to glorify yourself. Help this time this morning to be a moment where we lift up Christ and his excellencies. We pray all this in his name. Amen. Well, I recognize some of you are probably new, but if you aren't new and you were here last week, you know this is our second week in the book of 1 John. We've been studying what fellowship with God and fellowship with other believers around us is all about. Last week, we looked at John's introduction to the letter, and we saw how Christ's incarnation and how his work on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection provided for us an opportunity for relationship with God, for fellowship with other believers, and lastly, for complete joy, chapter 1, verse 4. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. We also took a look at how John, in this letter, is ultimately writing to give believers assurance that they are saved, to help them understand what is it that I see in my life that is evidence of a saving faith in Christ. Now, in this text, in our time together this morning, we take a look at John's first real argument, the first point he's trying to make, and he focuses in on how sin and obedience should both affect our communion with God. How our sin in our lives and our, our 
Obedience to Christ's commands reveals our affection for Christ and also reinforces either our affection for or rejection of Jesus Christ. So this morning we're going to be working through this text here this morning. John begins his argument, just like he did last week, by laying a theological foundation, a truth that is going to undergird everything else he teaches. And we see John's foundation in in chapter 1, verse 5. Look at this. He says, This is the message we have heard from him, And proclaim to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. This is a fascinating declaration. I want to talk about both the messengers, the delivery of this message, and also the message itself. First, we see who is delivering this message. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you. What is he talking about? The sequence is actually kind of critical. One of the things you'll note if you read through this text is in this first chapter alone, there are 32 uses of the word we, our, or us. It comes up again and again and again. John is making a point. He is saying there's a group of people that received what was heard from Christ and is then proclaiming that to the other believers. Something Christ taught was received by them. We have heard from him. And then that is to be proclaimed to other believers, to everyone else. So what we have here is a message delivered by Christ to his apostles that is then turned around and given to everyone else. And so as we move through the chapter, this shift occurs from we being those who have personally seen Christ to we being everyone that is believers, everyone that is claiming Jesus Christ. And so he says, we have proclaimed this to you. Now what precisely is the proclamation? What have they proclaimed? Look back at verse 5. This is staggering, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. That is an incredible message to be declaring. That is an incredible message to be proclaiming. It has these two components, both a positive and a negative. God is light, and therefore there is no darkness in God. God is pure, perfect light. Now, what do we mean by light? I could walk through all of the Old Testament's uses of this parallel of light and darkness. We could talk back about Genesis like we did last week, or I could go through John's gospel and show you how he lays out this light and darkness comparison, but I'm not going to go through all that because we don't have time together this morning. I'm going to ask you to take my word for it. This illustration of light and darkness is the idea of purity and goodness versus sin and darkness. God being light here means God's glory, God's goodness, God's purity. In In short, John is saying God is holy. We don't use words like holy much anymore, do we? God is holy. That means God is set apart. God is so entirely distinct from everything he's created because he is morally pure. He is not defective in any way, shape, or form. Do we understand that? He explains what that means. He says darkness cannot exist in God. All of us are a bit of a mixed bag, aren't we? I don't know if you feel this much on a day-in and day-out basis, but there's some good that we see and there's some negative that we see. Though the heart of man is deceitful and wicked, we are capable of altruistic acts, are we not? But we are also capable of some incredible evil. There is some mixture there in the world we see, and even we sense in our own hearts, that doesn't exist in God. Think about what he is saying. God is light. God is holy. God is pure. And he is so pure and so light and so holy that no ounce of darkness can exist anywhere in his presence. The point he's making is that God cannot abide with sin. 
God is perfectly holy. This is critical for us to grasp if we're going to understand the rest of his argument. Because without this point, then the rest of what I'm going to preach is simply moralism. This is about the character of God. God is perfectly pure and holy. His standard is beyond anything we can possibly imagine. Which means we must recognize that have to commute or to have communion with a holy, pure God, we must first recognize the light. His point here is that if we are to have communion with God, we must recognize light for what it is and darkness for what it is. Do you understand what he's talking about here? He's saying God is pure and holy and perfect light. And if we don't know what light is, we will never long for it. It's almost as if John is making the point, like imagine yourselves in a cave. Have you ever been in one of those cave experiences where they turn off all the lights and you can't see your hand right in front of your face? Imagine being lost in that cave, unable to see your hand in front of your face, and all of a sudden you see a pinprick of light. And as you move closer to the light, you can see more and more, and it gets closer, and it gets larger, and it gets more real. And he's saying God is like that. God is pure, and God is holy, and there is an unescapable move toward that light when you are lost in darkness, is there not? Saying God is like that light. So our understanding of how to have communion with God first means we have to recognize who God is and that he is that sort of source of light. This is a theological foundation, but we must stress this to understand what else he's going to say. We also must marvel at this reality. Everything you have ever seen your entire life has been corrupted and infused with sin. Your own heart, the other people around you, this very world is groaning under the weight of sin, and God is holy. We should marvel at that reality. He is so unlike anything we have ever seen or witnessed in this life. It also means we should have an uncontrollable urge to worship him. When you think of God's holiness, the fact that he is so much grander and so much greater and so much better and so much more good than anything you've ever seen, does that not move your heart to worship him? In fact, we almost don't know how to worship him because he's so much different than everything else we've experienced. It also means that we should pursue him. As that light in that cave, if we are surrounded by darkness, unable to move or know what to do, we move toward the light. You ever feel that way in the world? Like everything you see is darkness. In that, God is light. We should pursue that. We should pursue it everything we have. And in order to understand the argument he's going to make, we have to recognize that sin, this darkness in our own hearts, destroys our communion with God. If God is perfect lightness and he has no darkness in him, then anything of our sin is going to cause disruption in our relationship with God. That will dictate how we approach sin. It will also dictate how we approach obedience. Not as a sort of knuckled under, I guess if I have to, but this idea of I get to follow God. I hope I haven't belabored that point. But we have to recognize this reality if we're ever going to move forward with the rest of John's argument. 
We must begin by acknowledging this foundation of God as light and then pursue communion with God by recognizing that light, by recognizing God for who he is. That's where this whole thing starts. But very quickly, John begins to move off of that foundation and he begins to provide some practical implications, which I realize is helpful to some of us. First, he talks about this opportunity for sin's deception from verse 6 down to verse 2 of chapter 2. Here in the center of John's argument, in this middle section, John begins to make his argument. He lays out three errors. And each of these errors correspond to a lie, a deception that sin breeds in our hearts. Now, you'll notice the format. He'll talk about a hypocritical deception that we believe in our hearts, and then he'll talk about an honest evaluation of the way we should look at things. And each of the lies is led into with a statement, if we say, look at verse 6, if we say, down in verse 8, if we say, and then begin in verse 10, if we say. And then John begins to respond to each of these. We'll start with lie number one, the lie I would call lying to others. Verses 6 and 7. He begins with this deception. What is the lie that is being told here? Verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. What is the claim here? What is, what is the argument that his opponents, his theological opponents, these Gnostics are making? They're saying, I walk with God. I am walking with God. Right? But their actions are betraying where their heart is actually at while... We walk in darkness. That's what the Gnostics believed, right? This separation of spirit and physical. I can say I have this spiritual connection to God while doing whatever I want with my body, while living however I want in the physical world. He says, if you believe that, you lie and do not practice the truth. He said, we can't embrace this spiritual reality on one hand and live however we want to. That is equal to not practicing the truth. This reveals that you're lying to everybody. You're saying, I have fellowship with God, when there's no way that's possible because God is light. Instead, he opts for this honest evaluation. He indicates his response in verse 7 with the word, but. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. What a statement. Is this what walking in the darkness looks like? Let me tell you what walking in the light looks like. And we would expect him to say, if we walk in the light, then we'll have fellowship with God. Instead, he says, if we walk in the light, we'll have fellowship with one another. He's going to make the case more and more how our relationships with other believers betray what's going on actually inside of our hearts. So I won't belabor that point. But his point is, by walking in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us. From all sin. What an incredible reality. What an incredible reality. John's point here is that a true believer cannot maintain an active indifference to sin. Let me say that again, because to our culture today, that sounds like bigotry. A true believer cannot maintain an active indifference to sin. That's what his opponents were trying to say. They were trying to say, I can walk with God, I have fellowship with God, and then they were out going out on Monday morning and doing whatever they wanted, living however they wanted, and saying it doesn't make any difference. It doesn't make any difference. Holiness doesn't matter. And John is saying, God is light. 
In him is no darkness at all. Do you understand what he is saying? He's saying that true believers cannot maintain an active indifference to sin. I'm not talking about perfection. I'm not talking about sinlessness. But to a believer, this active indifference to sin is darkness. From there, John begins to address his second issue, his second error, his second lie. Look at verse 8 and 9, and we see that in addition to lying to others, we also lie to ourselves. Look at verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. You see that? You can lie to everyone around you. You can also lie to yourself. This claim of, I have no sin. See, he addresses multiple different possible errors in this talk, in this discussion. He says, if you claim you have no sin, you're just a liar, but you're lying to yourself. We deceive ourselves. This idea of thinking, I have perfection, that I can do it on my own, that I'm all right on my own, God doesn't need, or me, I don't need Christ, I can just live however I want to because I'm pretty much good on my own. And most of us would be quick to recognize the fact that we are not perfect. But practically, we sometimes act otherwise, don't we? Like, yeah, I'm not quite perfect, but I'm a lot better than that guy. I'm a lot better than her. I'm doing okay in comparison to them. Because we claim we have no sin, we lie, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. John again responds to this error in verse 9. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Odds are many of you have memorized that verse for time. What an incredible reality. It says, an honest evaluation would look at this and not say, I have no sin, but say, I have sins to confess just as much as he or she does. I have sin. I have things that are indwelling in me that I know are there. Probably all of you have something in mind, even as I say those words, do you not? Something that you're aware of that maybe nobody else sitting around you knows that's going on in your heart. So John argues for honest evaluation. He says, if we confess our sins, and what is God's response to this? This is incredible. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. If we recognize that we are not sinless, that we can't do it in our own strength, and we confess those sins to God, God is faithful to forgive us. And he is just because he poured out that wrath on Jesus Christ. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To this incredible washing, cleansing effect in our lives. See, in much the same way that true believers cannot maintain an active indifference to sin, true believers also cannot claim to be sinless. There's these two ditches that John is trying to help us avoid. Those of us that think we're perfect and we don't have anything to confess, and those of us that think we can live however we want in spite of what we confess. See, believers cannot claim to be sinless. And he expands on this view 
to show how this kind of thinking, more than even just betraying our own hearts and causing us to believe a lie to ourselves, actually causes us to believe a lie about God. The last and greatest error is lying about God. Look at verse 10. He says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. That if we claim this sort of moral perfection, this sort of superiority, then actually we're making a lie, we're making a claim about God that is not true. Now why is that? Because if we were sinless, if we were perfect, if we were able to attain God's perfect standard in our own strength, Christ wouldn't have to come. Verses 1 through 4 would make absolutely no sense. We're saying, God, I actually don't need your help. I can actually do it in my own strength. Are you ever tempted to believe that? That it's by sheer force of will that you can make yourself achieve God's standard. John actually makes the case here that if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And then what follows is what I believe to be an unfortunate chapter break. I don't like this chapter break in chapter 2 because I think it actually breaks a thought. Because I think what follows in chapter 2 is John's response to this error of thinking we are sinless and we are good on our own. He begins by briefly restating his goal because he doesn't want the people he's writing to to misunderstand. He's saying, what I'm not saying is that we're okay with sin. Look at verse 1. My little children... I am writing these things so that you may not sin. He wants to make it abundantly clear that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us. But that doesn't mean we should continue to sin. Paul makes the same argument in the book of Romans. He says, I'm actually writing to help you mortify sin, to help you stop sinning. And so he responds to this hypocritical deception of saying, I am sinless in verse 1. He says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteousness. That is another absolutely stunning statement. In response to this idea of we have not sinned, he says, but when you do sin, remember you have an advocate with the Father. Now this word advocate is really interesting. It's the word that we get that a lot of times is used of the Holy Spirit, paraclete. You're probably familiar. The term here is parakletos which is the idea of an advocate. And we tend to think in terms of a lawyer, an advocate, somebody who argues in our defense, right, in a courtroom sort of thing. But that's not quite what this word actually means. It's more of the idea of a character witness than a lawyer arguing on your behalf. You understand the difference? A, a lawyer will stand before you and will say, I'm arguing for this person's innocence or, or whatever the case might be. A character witness says, I know him or her. And they're not like that. I know him or her, and I can vouch for their character. Now, here's the thing. Given John's argument about none of us being sinless, by reading that statement of Christ's advocacy, every single one of us should be asking the question, how is that possible? How can Christ, as my advocate, vouch for my character when he has just said, if anyone says they do not sin, they're a liar? How can Christ do that? I think verse 2 is the answer to that question. We see Christ's sufficiency in verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not only for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. It goes back to the truth of the gospel in Christ's sufficiency. Why Christ had to be fully divine and fully man. What we talked about at the beginning of John. 
talks about Christ's propitiation. Now, that's a kind of a funny word that you don't see much in common language today. Propitiation. The term itself conveys the idea of satisfying payment. It's the concept of you have gotten this debt. You have gotten yourself in the red. You are overwhelmed by what you cannot pay in your bank account. Somebody comes in and says, I'm paying that in full. They make propitiation for you. They satisfy your debt, and that's precisely what he's advocating that Christ has done. He says, Christ is our propitiation, the satisfying payment for our sins. That's the heart of the gospel. That is the heart of John's argument. Again, no one can say from 1 John that John is a legalist. The God doesn't believe in the gospel. John says the way sin is dealt with is Christ's propitiation. Christ paid everything on the cross for your sin, for my sin. And he goes beyond that and he says for the sins of the whole world. We hear this too often in the church. We are not struck by that incredible statement. If you would understand the weight of your sin, the offense against a God that is pure light and in Him there is no darkness at all, then you will miss just how significant Christ's propitiation is here for you. That you could offer nothing up to God to justify yourself and Christ did it all for you. And so Christ can then advocate on your behalf and He can say, I know Him, I know her, I vouch for them because I paid the penalty they couldn't pay. So just as much as true believers cannot be indifferent to sin and true believers cannot claim perfection, true believers rest ultimately on Christ's righteousness. And John makes that point extremely clear. He says, if you think you have not sinned, you make God a liar. That's precisely why he sent Christ, to save you and the world from their sins. Which brings us to our second point, if communion with God requires us to recognize the light, then it also means that communion with God means walking in the light. It means recognizing that we walk according to how God has called us to walk. And this isn't simply John's argument. This isn't simply something he came up with. Turn to the left in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. In John chapter 3, Christ actually gave him these words. John chapter 3 Verses 19 through 21. Probably for, you're familiar with John 3.16. I'm not going to actually read that here, but you all know it by heart, I expect. Going from that statement, later on in that section, Jesus goes on and John quotes these words in John 3, verse 19 through 21. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. See how in his gospel John describes the difference between this light and darkness? And how we in our fallen state hide from the light, we retreat from the light because we're terrified that it would expose what's actually going on in our hearts. But in order to have ongoing communion with God, we must seek to walk in the light. 
We must seek to mortify this sin that causes a break in our communion with God, not in our union with God. That's perfectly done by Christ. He makes that point. But in our ongoing relationship with God, our sin causes a problem because we want to retreat from the light because we don't want it to expose what's going on in our lives. Now, what are the implications for this? Why does this matter that he makes these arguments? Because sin is deceptive. And sin in each one of our hearts will blind us to the realities of itself. It will cause us to lie to others. It will cause us to lie to God. It will cause us to lie to ourselves. And so John shines a little light on the condition of the heart. For the unbeliever, if you do not know Christ here this morning, and you just walked in off the street because you're wondering what Christianity is all about, one of the things you need to take stock of and one of John's arguments here for you is that embracing Christ means ultimately rejecting your sin. Christ doesn't ask you to deal with your sin before you turn to him. But turning to him will mean turning away from your sin sooner or later. It's not how you're justified. It's not how you earn salvation with Christ. But if you are to walk with Christ in the long run, it means you'll have to mortify and turn away from those sins again and again and again. We're not offering a bait and switch here in Christian circles. We're not telling you that your walk with Christ, your salvation through Jesus, doesn't have implications for your life. It does. I encourage you to take stock of what that means. But I also encourage you to recognize that communion with Christ is infinitely better to that sin you want to hang on to. There's also a word here, I think, for those of us that have become complacent in our walk with Christ. For those of us that have found ourselves somewhat indifferent to a sin in our life, and as sin has begun to blind us to the realities of what we're doing, we have to recognize that embracing sin means turning our back on Christ. Christ is our propitiation. Christ is the sacrifice. But every time we choose sin over Christ, we are saying, I want that more than I want you. Do you view your sin that way? That tiny, insignificant, we think, sin that we're hiding in the corner of our hearts is an active rejection of a relationship with Christ. We say, I want this more than I want you, Christ. I encourage you to take stock of what John is saying here. But I also think in this section, there's also a word for those of us that feel discouraged here this morning. Because there are those of us that have fought tooth and nail again and again and again to mortify, to kill the sin that continues to dwell in our hearts. And those of us that feel that way need to remember what verse 1 says, that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. He is your righteousness. It is not by works, it is not by effort, it is not by perseverance that we make ourselves righteous. Christ did that for you. And so you get to put sin to death. And it isn't by defeating sin in your life that you are justifying yourself. And you need to be encouraged by that reality too. To keep up the fight, it isn't a lost cause. Because you have the Spirit and you have the Word of God and Christ has paid the penalty for you. We must recognize sin's deception in our life and pursue communion by God by seeking to walk in the light, to recognize our sin, not to pretend like we don't have any, 
and to confess that sin to God. That's the first practical implication of John's argument here. But there's a flip side to that coin, and there is a second reality that we see here, and that is the reality of the believer's devotion. We see this in verses 3 through 6 of chapter 2. This final section follows the same sort of positive and negative comparison that the earlier section had. But instead, this time, John starts with the positive. Look at verse 3. He says, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. He begins by addressing sin, and then he moves to the opposite side of the coin and addresses obedience. He addresses obedience in this positive affirmation. He says, by this you may know. And remember, John is making the argument throughout this book. Remember 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, that says, that you may know you have eternal life. He's trying to help his audience understand that they have eternal life. And what affirms this? Look back at verse 3. That we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Now, as we already mentioned, John didn't simply come up with this. We read in John chapter 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's a manifestation of our love and relationship with Christ. The point he's making here is that obedience indicates there's a relationship. In much the same way that I never, if I had continued to be a single individual living on my own, would never have stopped using three-way light switches. I would have continued using them until I died someday. But because I have a relationship with my wife and I care about her and what she loves, I chose to stop doing that. Obedience indicates there's a relationship. It's not the same, but it's very similar. Do we love Christ enough to obey him? And therefore, the opposite must be true. The negative must be true as well. Look at verse 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. It's a pretty serious statement from the Word of God. Don't just read over that. It says, whoever says, I know him, I know God, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. Whoever says, I have a relationship, I have fellowship with God, but I have no desire to obey what he has called me to do, the implication is there's no possession of the truth. If obedience indicates relationship, then disobedience indicates ignorance. Now, advocating perfection, he's just explained that Christ is the one who paid it all, but he is saying it will have an impact on the way you live. It's kind of like this. Let's, let's say for a moment that you have a friend that has an extreme peanut allergy. I had a friend in grade school growing up who was extremely allergic to peanuts, and so, so much so that if you got the peanut oil on your hands and then touched that person, they would break out in hives, right? I don't know how many of you are maybe that, or you have a friend like that. What would it be like if you had a friend like that and you decided, I'm going to start eating peanuts around them? How loving would that action be? Is your lack of eating peanuts around them the, the reason for your relationship? Well, no. But what does it indicate about your relationship with that person? Your care for that person, your concern for their well-being? Thing, our internal rejection or intentional rejection of what Christ has commanded us to do indicates that we don't really know him. See, I don't really care what matters to him. I don't really care to follow him. It's an indication that we're ignorant of who he is. And then John double-clicks on this idea and draws an obvious extension in verse 5. He says, But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. 
there's this obvious extension, right? The believer's love for God is perfected in their desire to obey Him, in their manifestation of their union with Him. Being in Him results in a change in our behavior. And then the crux of John's whole argument is in verse 6. Whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which He walked. The point John's making says, if you say you abide with him, if you say you spend time with him, do you walk in the way he walked? Do you desire to follow after him? Do you desire to know him and to love him? It means that communion with God means following the light. It means we walk after Christ, rejecting sin and pursuing him and obedience to his commands. And obviously this has implications for all of us here as well. If you don't know Christ, it means that if you embrace Christ, you're going to follow what he calls you to do. Christ's own words in the gospel says, take stock of this before you start building the house. Are you willing to follow Christ with your life and with everything you have? Again, there are some of us that have grown indifferent to Christ's commands. And we don't see it as rejecting Christ and turning our back on him. I have sat with people and shown them plainly, this is what Christ commands. And they said, well, that's good for somebody. Have you ever been guilty of that? Have you ever found yourself reading through the Word of God and saying, that conflicts with the way I'm living my life, but I'm sure God will understand. I'm sure He won't mind. I'm sure my sin isn't such a big deal. Again, John is not arguing that it is those actions and that obedience that earns your salvation, but he is saying that if you truly know God, you will long to obey Him. Do you long to obey Christ's commands? And I do also want to note that within this whole section, within the rest of the book of John, we have to recognize that John is more concerned here with direction than with position. The argument he is not making is for us all to take out a spectrum and try to line up the entire church, single file, Say, well, who's more mature than, I think I need to go over here, and then that person is probably less mature than me, because all of us want to do that, right? We want to go, okay, well, I think I'm better than this half of the church, but I'm not better than that half of the church. No, he's more concerned with direction. He's not saying, do you have more hatred of sin than that person? Do you have more love for obeying Christ than that person? He's saying, do you have more hatred of sin than you did yesterday? Do you have more love for Christ than you did yesterday? Are you growing? What is the direction of your life? Some of us are discouraged because we don't see ourselves as spiritual giants. It's not what John is arguing you must be here. Instead, he's saying, what is the direction of your life? Are you pursuing Christ more than you did yesterday? Are you rejecting sin more than you did yesterday? We must evaluate our devotion to Christ and pursue communion with God by following the light. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Because of Christ paying our penalty, we get to destroy sin. We get to obey Christ. We get to pursue the light rather than stumbling around in the darkness like before we knew him. 
if we would pursue communion with God, I think this is John's argument. He's saying it begins by recognizing the light, by seeing the light as valuable and longing to be in the light. And how do we do that? By walking in the light, by actively rejecting sin day after day, and by following the light, by pursuing obedience day after day. And John's argument, and he'll continue to expand this through the remainder of the book, is the more time we spend with Christ, the more we will love to obey and the more we will hate sinning against him. And the more we love to obey and the more hate we hate sinning against him, the better our relationship will be with him. And so it goes relationship to obedience to relationship to obedience in this tightening web of getting to know God who is pure light. Obedience and rejection of sin are not a reality that we have to grudgingly endure. They are an opportunity that comes from our knowledge of God. Let's pray. Father, I believe that is the honest desire of many hearts here. To know you more, to mortify the sin that is in their lives. Father, I would pray that as we continue to fight that way, that you would encourage those that know you. And Lord, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you this morning, that you would open their eyes to see how their walk and how their affections betray what is really going on in their heart. Father, we can't earn any hope of having a relationship with you, but through the personal work of Jesus Christ, we do have salvation, the payment of our sins. And I pray that we would live for that, that we would embrace that, and that we would pursue relationship with you with everything we have. In Christ's name, amen.